Hey everybody, it's me again. What am I doing here? Why do I keep showing up? Are we in the regular season? We're not. We're not in the regular season for the show. Um, so don't get your hopes up. Don't get yourself fall up. Oh, oh my goodness. We're, we're ramping back up. This is just me popping in at semi-regular intervals, just trying to say hello, distribute some uh, some light film news, anything I think is thought-provoking or I think I could expound on a little bit. I'm not here to give you a quick little buzzy news hits. And you can Google film news if you really want to know everything. I'm here to give you some of my opinions on some of this stuff um, or just to address it or highlight it, whatever, whatever word you want to use. So something I wanted to highlight today, this is kind of newsy, but it's it it speaks to a larger uh, trend possibly in filmmaking, but certainly interesting and the first of its kind. This is from The Hollywood Reporter on January 20th. The film studio to be launched in space in 2024. Um, it is the SEE-1 studio module, the Space Entertainment Enterprise. It's a company that is co-producing this movie that Tom Cruise is making in space with Doug Liman. Um, they're going to launch a TV and film studio alongside a streaming content studio and sports arena in space scheduled for a December 2024 opening. It's, uh, it says, uh, the article says, named SEE-1, the Microgravity Film, TV, Sport, and Entertainment Production and Broadcast Module, a world first, would be fitted to the Axiom Station, a commercial space station being built by Axiom Space that would attach to the current International Space Station before orbiting on its own. And so th- then they go on to list all the stuff that this is going to be built for, because you got to believe if you're going to put a studio in space, you need to have big plans for what kind of content you want to to make with it. Plans for the module include hosting film, TV, music, and sports events, as well as artists, producers, and creatives who want to produce content in the low orbit microgravity environment, while also enabling the development, production, recording, broadcasting, and live streaming of content SEE also intends to produce its own content and events in the module, as well as make them available to third parties. So essentially, it's a studio that wants to make its own stuff, but it's also saying, hey, if you got some stuff you want to make in low orbit, uh, we're your your guys uh, or girls or husband and wives, uh, because this is co-funded, I believe they're husband and wife, uh, by Elena and Dmitry Lesnevsky. And they are co-producing that film with Tom Cruise and Doug Liman. Uh, the COO of SEE, his name is Richard Johnston. He says, from Jules Verne to Star Trek, science fiction entertainment has inspired millions of people around the world to dream about what the future might bring. Creating a next generation entertainment venue in space opens countless doors to create incredible new content and to make these dreams a reality. Forget that it's in space for a second. I know that's, you know, but, you know, hey, a company is building a studio and uh for for people to use that so that's not weird that's good hey that's great you know the more the merrier whatever um putting it in space that might be must be incredibly expensive um unless i'm missing something unless it's cheaper to build in space for some reason um yeah so i can't think i, I keep i keep saying oh i can't think of who would ever want to shoot something sp- specifically in low orbit microgravity but lots of, I mean, superhero movies and, you know, uh, Mission Impossible, just a lot of stuff. I mean, they, they must have, they definitely must have talked to a bunch of filmmakers before conceiving of this. Like, w- would you see a need? You know, you, you build stuff like this because you see a need. So was there a need for this sort of environment to, to make content? 
Is it solely gimmicky? Like, here we are live from space. It's the Saturday night. They must have enough cause to do this. Good luck to them. Um, I don't know that I, if I were working on a film set or making a film or acting a film, I don't know that I would ever feel comfortable. Like, I wonder what the insurance is on on putting cast and crew up in, you know, again, even if it's low orbit, you're, you're putting people in, in outer space. I'm interested to see how this develops. I wonder if you are too, because, uh, I mean, it's, oh, great, cool, good for them. But at the same time, it's like, wow, like we would joke about this. And now it's like, now we're going to make movies in space. And what's, what's, are we going to have a, um, is Warner Media going to have a station on the moon? I'm joking, but somebody from Warner Media just heard that and they were like, oh, you think? Do you think we should? What do you think? Hmm, I wonder what the focus groups would say about that. Next story I have here is, this is a story from Deadline, and it's just a simple kind of principle. Again, it's a little bite of news, but I wanted to expound on it a little bit. Um, this was on January 20th as well. Don't look up creator Adam McKay addresses criticism of the Netflix environmental satire. And he's just he's talking to BBC Radio 4, and he's just said, comedy is subjective. Like Adam McKay is saying what every director should say when their movie receives criticism. It shouldn't be, oh, well, they don't get it. Or, oh, yeah, maybe I should have thought about some of these things before. He's saying what I would expect anyone to say, which is just like, okay, it's not for everybody. Like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. It's going to have some 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 critics. Um, you can't make a movie to please everyone. It's not possible. And he literally says, you're never going to make a movie to appeal to everyone. He said if if he had chosen to make a stark drama or a dystopic picture about the climate crisis, it w- would have been the same reaction. And he says, comedy is always subjective. Certain people are going to think things are too funny or silly or not care for them. So that's built in. Um, I have not seen Don't Look Up yet. I still haven't watched it. But apparently it is the second highest, second most watched film of all time on Netflix. So that's pretty cool. That's good for him. Adam McKay, you know, went on from making movies like Anchorman and now he's basically making, you know, social socio-political satires these days, which is working for him. Vice did well, Big Short. A lot of people love the Big Short. I couldn't get through it, but everyone was telling me how great it was. I just it wasn't for me. I do plan to to watch Don't Look Up. It's on my it's in my queue. I'm just trying to get through Ozark right now. Um but I plan to watch Don't Look Up. And if I if I have opinions on it, I will come on here and tell you about them. You can bet on it. Um yeah uh it's it's kind of goes to what I was saying last time about the Oscars, like best picture, according to whom, like we're all allowed to have opinions in this subjective space. And that includes the audience, but that also, you know, the director's allowed to say, I mean, the director knows they're making a good director knows and is not worried that they're making a movie that cannot possibly please the entire four quadrant demographic. Even someone who's making a blockbuster movie, even something that is as widely praised as Avengers Endgame. What do critics say? Well, it's just a big popcorn movie. Oh, it lacks it lacks edge or depth or yeah, it's just a big, you know, CGI. Like it, a film is always going to be too, too uh, visual for some people, too underdeveloped for other people, too funny for some, not funny enough for others, too many A-listers, not enough A-listers, too much action, not enough action, um, too short, too long, too too loud and too loud and, and, and fast and, or, or too slow and, um, plotting. And that's, it's just human existence. Like you can't ever get anyone on the same page about anything, especially art. And that's okay. 
again, there's no urgency or call to action here with me talking about this article. I, I, ma- I mainly want to highlight and, and praise and elevate the, this statement by Adam McKay because it's true. You can't please everyone. And any filmmaker that thinks they can is kidding themselves and wasting everyone's time making something that's ultra safe, doesn't take any chances. And I want, as much as Adam McKay's films may not be for me, um, I want filmmakers like him out there because I want people who understand this principle inherently. And it's, I feel like it's less common than one might think. Like, oh, of course, a filmmaker is going to know, like, you know, they can't please everyone by making their movie. But a lot of directors, especially the less experienced ones, may still think they can. Like, I can make the film. Yeah, but even the film isn't well received by everyone. People, it took it took Citizen Kane a long time to be recognized. That was partially because of William Randolph Hearst, but um, <laughs> blackballing the film and trying to get it pulled out of theaters and threatening people who advertised, <laughs> not letting, that's a crazy story in and of itself. Um, almost nothing that's has a lasting cultural impact in movies, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it like that, uh, was accepted wholesale in the beginning. I would say it's rare. So whenever something is praised, by the way, in the short term, I'm always sitting back here going, let's just give it some time. Let's let that, let's let this settle a little bit. Let's see what the general population thinks of it in two years if we still talk about it. And most of the time, we don't. We don't. And I and I'm and I'm thankful at that point that I didn't waste my time. This next one is from Collider. They have a list uh, that they made of the 20 best film acting debuts of all time. And they ranked them. So I don't want to read their Phil Woods editorial on the reasons. So I'm I'm just going to sort of talk about some that are on the list, not all of them. You can read this entire list on their website. But um, I want to talk about a few that I especially agreed to and a couple that surprised me. Um, again, I'm not going to go through the entire list. So I will talk about Jamie Bell uh, in, in Billy Elliot, because I reviewed Billy Elliot last year. And, uh, so I've seen this film recently and, uh, I did not know that was his first film role. Uh, that's cool though. Um, he's, he's great in it. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's the movie about the, if you've never seen Billy Elliot's, it was made in uh, 2000 and it's a film, uh, about a young boy, about 14, I guess well, he was fourteen, a young boy in um, in the nineteen eighties in uh, England. Who he's very poor. He's the son of a coal miner, and uh, but he wants to be a ballet dancer. And it's a story of class and you know social standing and um, social expectations of boys and stuff. It's it's a it's a it's a it's it's a good movie, but it has a it's a good story for sure. Another big one on the list I totally agree with uh, is Haley Steinfeld as Maddie Ross in the 2010 adaptation of True Grit by the Coen brothers. I love True Grit. I recently just put this on my Netflix queue uh, again, even though I own it physical because I'm much more likely just to pull it up on my phone, sadly, than I am to sit down and actually plug in my Blu-ray player and watch it. So we moved into a new house and I have nowhere to put the Blu-ray player except for the bedroom. So if I'm out in the main room and I want to watch a movie... I just have a fire stick and I just, I have to use digital. So that's my life. Um, cause it's wall mounted and there's nothing nearby to place a, a Blu-ray player on it. And what do you, what am I supposed to do? Don't at me. 
yeah, Haley Steinfeld's great. She's been great in everything I've seen her in. Um, even when the stuff that's written for isn't that great, like in Hawkeye. But uh, Haley Steinfeld's great. She's amazing in True Grit. When you consider, especially that she's basically the main character of the film, and that she's acting against, you know, Josh Brolin and Jeff Bridges and Matt Damon and a bevy of other Cohen Cohen esque character actors. She's she's great, but she doesn't go too far. Performance isn't broad. It's very specific and understated. I love it. Um, I did not know that Edward Norton's first role was in Primal Fear in 1996, just what, three years before Fight Club? That's great. Um, I have not seen Primal Fear, but I didn't realize it was that recent. Of course, they talk about Gabare Sidibe, Gabare Sidibe in, um, in Precious. I knew that was her first role. I've still never seen Precious, nor have I read the book based on the novel Push by Sapphire. Because um, I just feel like it's going to make me uncomfortable. I know that's the whole point, but the thing's on my shelf right behind me. Like I, I, I own this book. I have not seen the book, seen the film or, or read the book. Um, and I feel like I probably should. Okay, I will. I will. I can't bring her up and talk about the, how cool it is that that was her first performance. But she was like nominated for an Oscar. Like that was, you know, amazing. We've got Jared Gilman and Kara Hayward as Sam and Susie. Uh, in Moonrise Kingdom. I actually really like Moonrise Kingdom. That's one of the Wes Anderson films that really works for me, where like the direction and the cinematography and the editing and the writing, the characterization, that all really clicks for me. That doesn't happen with all of his movies, but I actually do really like Moonrise Kingdom. Another one I didn't realize, Lupita Nyong'o. I didn't know that 12 Years a Slave was her debut. Uh, Lupita Nyong'o is great uh, and has been great in many things in the last nine years. Um, yeah, I didn't, didn't realize at all. This was her. Oh, that's incredible. Um, who else we have on here? We have Orson Welles, of course, as Charles Foster Kane. I was talking about Citizen Kane earlier on in this show. Now I've talked about this one before. I've talked about Tom Holland in the impossible. Didn't know that was his first role, but Tom Holland, who also, I believe played Billy Elliot on the stage, uh, uh, coincidentally, Tom Holland is amazing in the impossible. The impossible is a, is a tremendous film already. Um, but his role as this kid Lucas in it is uh it it's the emotional core of the story. It's amazing. And he's great. It's coolest. Check out the entire thing on Collider. They compiled it, they wrote some thoughts on it, they got some facts, so you should read that as well, not just listen to my thoughts. But I'm trying to think if there's any other performance. Maybe it's not a first time performance, but I'm trying to think of whatever what performance in a movie may have stood out to me as like, oh wow, that's actually pretty good. Um, and I don't I can't think of anything that's on this plane. I'm more, th- I, I more think about things. I'm more thinking about movies where someone's performance surprised me, not a first time actor. Um, so maybe that's a bad time to bring this up, but, but, but like, like Tom Cruise, we talked about him earlier in the show with the space station thing, like Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder, really everybody in Tropic Thunder is, is, is great. But like, that was such a unexpected turn from him. Uh, who else, who else had a really, had one of those things? Um, there's small things. There's like, um, like Mike Myers in Glorious Bastards. He's in one scene. You barely even know he's there, but you're just like, wait a second. That's my, I love when I'm surprised by actors who are in a movie. Again, I know that's not what this article is about. I just, it got me thinking about when things like that happen in movies, whether you have a first time performance by a child or some new star who it t- turns out to have an amazing career. Um, it's, it's a treat. 
it's one of those things about movies that's really uh, enjoyable is when stuff like that really clicks and you get someone who comes who comes in and they're just they're just they nail it. It's amazing. It's a great feeling. One more story I want to point you towards today is this article on the Hollywood Reporter um, by Rebecca Keegan, and it's about Jennifer Lee, the uh, chief creative officer of Walt Disney Animation Studios, and also the writer and co-director of Frozen, Frozen 2. And I encourage you to read it because I'm actually really impressed with Jennifer Lee. Um, There was a documentary series on Disney Plus that I watched, and I talked about it on the podcast, um, about the making of Frozen 2. It was like Inside the Magic or something like that, Inside, Into the Unknown, that's what it was. And um, this lady has a lot of responsibilities inside the company. I mean, directing a film is hard enough. Directing animation is really hard as well. And then when you're essentially in charge of overseeing other films, the Disney, other Disney animation films that are in production, even if your own film is in production, that's a lot to handle. So first of all, I'll encourage you to go watch that series because while I wasn't impressed with Frozen 2 as a film, really, it wasn't for me, uh, nor did I really see anything other than kind of base level merit for it as a movie for kids. Um, I very much am interested in the process of how it was made. And I'm again, the star of that series is Jennifer Lee um, watching her, everything that goes into her day, how busy she is, how, how much she's in charge of it's, it's remarkable. It kind of starts off talking about how she, the story of, uh, of how the, the upcoming movie um, Iwaju is going to, you know, the one that's a Disney animated film that's coming out next year, um, made by uh, a Nigerian company and uh, Kugali Media, and uh, essentially about how she got in touch with those people to begin with, and how that's kind of part of this initiative that she's trying to instill uh, at Disney to sort of update and evolve and progress their storytelling. Um, as in, in, in her capacity as chief, uh, as chief creative officer, um, which it says she's been in the job since June, 2018, it feels like longer, but she's made a dent in the short amount of time she's been there. The article points out quote, but during her tenure, the studio that used to make one feature a year has been pushed to create more content, including its first series for Disney plus while battling an unpredictable box office environment of the pandemic. She stepped into the job six months after the company's larger-than-life CCO, John Lasseter, departed abruptly amid what he called missteps. She was charged with refocusing a demoralized studio and delivering her own anticipated film, Frozen 2, in less than 18 months. She says, people would ask, how are you going to do it? And she finally just said, guys, I got it. I'm a mom. And I know that some people probably groan at an answer like that, like, oh, okay, you're a mom. And I don't have to tell you or any, any moms listening or any human being listening that being a mom, being a parent, but you know, it's, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. It's mentally draining. There's more kids you have, the more logistics are involved in your everyday life. Take it from me. I've got four of them. And uh, my wife and I both work and uh, it's a lot. I can't imagine directing a film and being the head of the entire department like she is. That's impressive. Something else is impressive. I didn't know this. She's married to Alfred Molina. It's crazy. Crazy. I don't know why I said it like that. That's so crazy. She's married to Alfred Molina. I went from like Italian to Czech there. 
The article says, Lee's ability to multitask has been key on the job. Just a few hours after she was appointed to run the studio, she was at a test screening in Arizona for the Wreck-It Ralph sequel, Ralph Breaks the Internet, along with Alan Horn, then chairman of Walt Disney Studios, Alan Bergman, then president, the film's directors, Rich Moore and Phil Johnston, as well as the heads of story and its producers. After the screening, the team adjourned to an empty theater to discuss the focus group results, which signaled confusion about the end of the film, a problem they would need to solve quickly as the movie was due in theater in five months. Everyone looked right at Jen, says Clark Spencer, a producer on Ralph Breaks the Internet, who has since become president of Walt Disney Animation Studios. She said, we got too complex, we wanted too many set pieces, and we're forgetting about the relationship between Ralph and Vanellope. Lose everything else. It could be funny. It could be interesting. You might love it. It doesn't matter. We've got to track these two characters. And says that she immediately focused the conversation. I was so impressed that in the few hours between... When her job was announced and this meeting, she had the ability to do that. Yeah, again, like there's there's more to this article. I don't want to read the entire thing. You should go check it out. Check out this article. Um, but it's really, really good to have somebody in positions of leadership that understand, you know, obviously they understand the commerce demanded of their position, like what they are responsible for in terms of the company making money. But that person has to be a creative. You have to be a creative that understands the commerce. You can't just put a pure artist in that position. You can't just put a, a an executive in that position who doesn't know what's good and what's bad, doesn't know, doesn't know story, doesn't know character. You need someone in that position who 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 understands that and who will not make creative sacrifices solely for the sake of money. Um again Check out the article. I I love Jennifer Lee. Um, I've only been exposed to her and what she does for a short amount of time, as has most people probably following her career. Not that I've followed her career, but I, I saw this article. I saw her name and I was like, ooh, Hollywood Reporter. It's, first of all, it's a good website. And Jennifer Lee, oh, great. And I just read this article and I was like, this is great. So a lot of cool stuff in there just to give you a little bit of a sense. And again, like, you know, there's a picture in here of her with... Alan Horn and Bob Iger, the former, the former CEO and now former, uh, chairman. Um, and, uh, I'm going to also recommend you read his book, the ride of a lifetime. Uh, I'm, I love Bob Iger and to talk about someone who oversees someone in a position of leadership, who is a creative and who understands creatives and knows how to support creatives and knows that in supporting creatives, you're supporting the well-being of the company. That's Bob Iger all over. And so what I've been impressed with, with Disney in a lot of ways recently, is that they have put people like that in those positions. Except now with Bob Chapek. That guy's, I'm not sure what was going on there. I don't know what they were thinking, putting him, I mean, I know what they were thinking. They were thinking money, but I personally, it's a disappointing choice. And I hope Disney's not listening. <laughs> because I've just lost myself a job with them if they ever uh, hear this recording. Uh, but it's, it's no secret. I don't, I don't think Bob Chapek is a, is a CEO that seems to uh, be that concerned with, um, with the customer experience on a, on a, on a, on a personal level uh, or the creative experience of the artists that work for him and his company. Uh, I think he solely thinks about money and that has been evident in his short time as CEO. Just look at the parks, 
Look at the films. Look at the Black Widow lawsuit. Look at all that shit. Um, so the more good people like Jennifer Lee that you can put in this company, the better it is for the product, for the company overall. Um, but it's just good. It's good for art in general um, and art on a large scale as it's as such as it is with Disney. So, OK, just wanted to tell you about that. I think that's all I'm going to do today. I think that's it. I'm not going to give my list of I'm not going to give a streaming list because there's not a list out for February yet. Um, and I don't have recommendations for you if I don't know what's coming. Uh, again, I will be watching the Olympics in early February. I think the opening ceremonies are on the 4th, but the the, the events begin on the 3rd. And that's going to be on NBC. Um, you can do it through Peacock or YouTube TV. You can always actually, if you have a cable subscription and you have a DVR, that's going to be the very best way to do it. Um, yeah, that's mostly what I'm looking forward to. And obviously, by the time this podcast is out, season four of Ozark is going to be out as well. And that's what I will be watching before I slam through a ton of other movies and TV shows. So after I'm caught up on Ozark, I'm taking a break from TV for a little bit. I'm going to do some I'm gonna run through some movies, get my docket together for the return of the podcast. And it will be excellent. It will be most excellent. So cool. Thanks for listening in. See you next time, whenever that will be. The last time I said that, I didn't think I'd be showing up a few days later to do another one of these, but here I am, again, just testing my equipment and talking about stuff that I got opinions on. Until next time, this is me signing off. Have a good week, have a good weekend, and I will see you next time. Next time.